Let's have an added word of prayer, shall we? Our Father, God, how important it is for um, us to seek your presence, your Holy Spirit, as we take a look at Scripture and Spirit of Prophecy today. We pray that you will guide and direct our minds, unlocking them, so that we can understand more clearly your plan for us, that we might be more effective in our witness for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may ask, or may be asking, how did this seminar come about? If I were to come to your church and present this over a weekend, it would be five sessions of about two hours apiece. And I have three one-hour slots, and so in planning for this, I had to condense, I had to decide what is it that you want these dear people to go away with? What principles do you want them to go away with that they can go home and use in an effective way in ministry to their communities, okay? So we're, you know, I've, I've pared it down as much as I can. We have a lot of ground to uh, cover this afternoon. What I plan to do is this. We're going to have three sessions, two this afternoon, one tomorrow morning. By the way, you know I've got a very challenging session. It's not because of you. It's because of what you ate in the dining hall. <laughs> and I know that for the next hour, hour and a half, I've got to keep you awake. I was sitting in, in Dr. Youngberg's meetings this, this week, and I was feeling sorry for him because I'm sitting back here. I am just totally trying to stay awake. Every energy, he probably saw me get up a couple times and walk back and forth across the back of the auditorium to clear my head. So if I see you do that, you have my permission to do that. If you get sleepy, drowsy, and the cobwebs begin to gather in your mind, you have my permission to get up. You won't offend me. You'll have my permission to get up and walk around if you need to. In fact, he told us and I remember his counsel. <laughs> Some of the best things you can do is exercise immediately after you eat, right? So, you have my permission. The seminar came about because, as a pastor, I faced the challenge of getting my people out of the pews and into ministry. I struggled with that for years, and Finally, I came to the conclusion, well, it drove me to the scriptures and the writings of Ellen White. And that's what I'd like to share with you today. But in the, in the course of that study, I came to the conclusion that my problem was not with my people in the pews. They were ready to witness. I just hadn't offered them the opportunity to do so. In fact, I was offering them such a narrow range of things that they could do that, and I was simply doing what my church had instructed me to do, okay? That I had, and we had, screened out about 98% 
of the people who were sitting there. And all I was doing was making them feel guilty. So my study transformed my thinking. I hope you go away from here never looking at your church or your church family the same way again because it changed my view of ministry and evangelism. Um, the only thing basically we were offering at that time was door-to-door um, -door ministry. And I'm going to take a little bit of a survey this, this afternoon. I just want you to raise your hands if you feel real comfortable with going door to door. Let me see. All right. That's about 2%, maybe a little more. Now, we don't know each other, so I'm going to spend just a moment in trying to introduce where I have come from. Um, you know, the servant of God says that God will call men from the plow. He did that with me. I grew up in northern Virginia. My family were builders and developers there. I grew up in the construction business. By the age of 18, I was a journeyman carpenter, and I was a foreman of a construction crew. Sometime after that, I, um, I changed to another profession. I started in sales, and I'm not a natural salesman like Jack is. <laughs> that just oozes out of this guy over here. Um, you know, I really had to work at it. And I'm, I, I know I'm going to date myself when I tell you this. I was a route salesman for a local dairy in the suburban Maryland area doing house-to-house -house delivery. I started at Golden Rule and then went later to Hadley Dairy. Um, and so that gives you an idea of how far back that is, okay? But eventually, um, I've been an innovator all my life and um, always looking for a better way of doing things. And even though I'd never been to Dale Carnegie or never taken any sales courses or anything like that, I figured there must be a way to be successful. Um, the suburban Maryland area at that time was a fast-growing area. I mean, houses were coming up out of the ground like mushrooms. And so I devised a very simple plan. It was very, very simple. It has to be simple if it's going to work. Okay. I kept my eye out for certain things. Um, empty boxes in front of garages. <laughs> Uh, automobiles that had never been in front of that house before, okay? And when I would see that, I'd drop off on my route momentarily, take a free quart of milk, pen a little note, leave it on the doorstep. Because I, I started delivering at 6 o'clock in the morning, okay? I left a little note. If it was later, I'd knock on the door. I'd leave a little note, and it says, don't you talk to anybody else till I get back. <laughs> I've got the best product, 
I've got the lowest prices, and we've got the only fully refrigerated fleet in the area. We were in competition with about another four or five dairies, big ones. I mean, I'm with a little independent dairy, non-union dairy. And that simple little technique resulted in me getting better than 50% of the new business among the four or five dairies. It's very simple. What I'm going to share with you today is very simple. Anybody can do it. Um, it comes straight from the Word of God and from the writings of Ellen White. Um, I sold for Worthington Foods at one time. In fact, I was a salesman for them when the new spun soy product first came on the market. And we went from being second dog <laughs> to top dog very quickly with that new product. Um, then later, uh, I went into the automotive repair business, had my own business for another Adventist fellow and myself in the Tacoma Park area for a number of years. Couldn't shake the call to the ministry. I knew I had the call to the ministry when I was four years old. I had an uncle who was one of our leading evangelists at that time. And I rarely go any place that I don't run into somebody who was not brought in in one of his evangelistic meetings. Of course, they're getting a little older now, and so I don't see them as often as I used to. But um, couldn't shake it. Kept running, 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 couldn't shake it. Finally. Finally, had to yield and say, God, if this is what you want me to do, I will do it. That call this morning, I don't know how it moved you, but it really moved me. Wasn't that a powerful message this morning? Praise God for that message. All right. Three things I want to accomplish. This session, we're going to talk about being the good news. The following session will be exploring two parabolic models in the fourth chapter of Mark um, on how to grow a church. And then tomorrow morning, those will be the main meal as we set, sort of set the table. We, we build a foundation today. Then tomorrow, mor tomorrow morning is the dessert when we talk about how to translate that into creative ministries that will reach your community, build friends in the community, open up opportunities for evangelism that you haven't had before. Okay? So we need to get right underway. And um, let's see here. Oh, yeah, I have to start with a personal disclaimer. I've come to talk about church growth. And the Lord tells us in the second parable that we're going to look at in the, in the next section that I don't know anything about it. Look at what he says. And he said, that is Jesus, the kingdom of God is if, as, if, as, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground 
and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow, what does it say? He himself does not know how. So you're asking, well, what are you doing here if you don't know anything about this? Well, God has given us certain instructions that we do know about, but this is his part. We talk about church growth and kingdom growth, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, I may use terms today that may cause you to wonder where I'm coming from, but just remember that we all use the same nomenclature, but it oftentimes means different things, okay? And I'm one that just refuses to give up a good word just because it, somebody has abused it, all right? So if you hear that and you wonder where I'm going, just relax. I think we're safe. But God says we don't know where the growth comes from. That is his part. How the church grows is his miraculous realm alone. All right. Notice in a, in a different venue, John 3, verse 8, Jesus said again to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is, all, is everyone who is born of the Spirit. A few months ago, an article appeared in the... Um, ministry magazine, and it focused on the sea. That's what these parables are about. I'm going to take a look at that for just a moment. We'll come back to that in the next session. The seed takes root and springs up because of what it is. Sometime, something about the seed is fitted to the soil, to the human heart. If the development has a sort of orderliness, it is often only a general one, not one that specifies this many leaves on just this, or, or, or of, this, of just this shade of green, or this many blossoms arranged just so. God's way of working in each heart is particular to that heart. We haven't the faintest idea, and we haven't the faintest idea how it happens much less the knowledge to engineer it. I'm going to pause there for just a moment. Most of the modern church growth movement is about managing growth. It's about doing surveys and then, you know, tailoring ministry in that direction. And I don't have any problem with surveys. The problem I have is this when the results drive and modify the way you do ministry, then I have a problem with that one, see. For instance, anybody acquainted with the book Megatrends? All right, see a few hands. You know how they put that together? Surveys. You can do the same in your community. You, know what, you want to know what your community feels are the greatest needs? Just read your local newspaper for six months and keep track of the uh, column inches that are devoted to any particular subject. 
And in six months, you'll have an idea of what is the greatest need in that community, what is the greatest felt need, what is number two, three, four, right on down the line. So all you have to do is very simple. Uh, you can do it by going door to door as well, but uh, you can do it like Megatrends does it. Uh, and simply take note of what your community says is their need, being sensitive to what they're saying, okay? So I don't have any problem with surveying and tailoring ministries to meet those needs. The problem with most church growth methods is that those who practice it allow the findings to determine and adjust and modify how they do ministry. And I mean that primarily by lowering standards to be more inclusive, et cetera, et cetera, okay? All right. Now what we do know is this, Christ's method alone will bring true success in reaching the people. How many methods are there that will bring true success? Hmm? How many? There's one. And it belongs and originates with our Lord and Savior Jesus. His method alone will bring true success. So my search um, led me on a journey to discover what that method was. Now, first of all, it might be good for us to, to clear the decks, let you know what the seminar is not, okay? Sometimes that's impor as important as knowing what it is. And so we're gonna look at it. This seminar is not a market-driven, seeker-friendly model. You could acquainted with those terms? Okay. It is not that in which society demands drive the growth strategies. I've already covered that. As I said, I don't, I don't have anything against doing surveys, but when they drive your evangelism strategies, then there's, that can be problematic. Secondly, the churches yield to those demands by lowering gospel standards. That's not what we're about here. So, you know, if I use a term from the church growth movement that I think is a good one, and you say, whoa, wait a minute, here's a red flag going up in your mind. Remember that um, what the seminar is not, okay? It's not about need satisfaction that takes precedent over doctrinal fidelity. Amen. Thank you. It's not, seeker it's not a seeker-friendly approach that downplays testing truth. It does not push testing truth to the background. It does not select a half a dozen of the more common doctrines that we hold in common with other denominations and emphasize those to the expense of testing truth. 
After all, we have the commission to prepare people for the coming of God, don't we? All right. So we must be faithful to, um, to the gospel. It doesn't recommend gospel light. You, you acquainted with that term? I'm sure you're not acquainted with the next one, or cool whip preaching. You know what cool whip preaching is? Cool whip tastes awful good, smooth, very satisfying in some ways, but how much food value does it have? None. We heard Pastor talking about that this morning. It doesn't recommend gospel light or cool whip preaching that makes people feel good rather than being good. Okay? Say, by the way, um, you're welcome to interrupt me and ask questions if you wish. This is a class. And I enjoy the interaction because I always learn from it. So if you have comments or you have questions that you'd like to make, feel free to do so. Please remember that our time is very limited and I'm rushing to get through this. What this seminar is, well, let's see here. Ah. It's an exploration of two key biblical models of evangelism. A bridal model, which we're going to look at now, and a garden model, which we will look at in the next session. They comprise a divine strategy for reaching all men with the gospel. They are simple strategies that will revolutionize your thinking as they did mine. Remember, God says, my ways are not your ways. Neither are my thoughts your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above yours and my thoughts above yours. So what we're going to be looking at today, hopefully, will change the way you look at some things. The bridal model. Take you to the 16th chapter of Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. In the earlier verses, he's talking about their nativity, their birth. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor swathed in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day that you were born. That takes us to Israel's humble, homely beginnings. God pointed out that they came from the Canaanite nations around them, their earliest ancestors, Abraham and Sarah. Uh, he likened the nation of Israel in the beginning to an unattractive, unwanted baby girls. We know the baby girls didn't count for anything in those days. They were not wanted. They were. The, 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 because of the agrarian society, the 
uh, parents wanted boys. They, they were the ones that were able to work the fields and, and herd the sheep and so on and so forth. And baby girls didn't count for anything. They didn't have any legal rights or standing in that day. And so he likened them to, the, to, a, to a baby girl who was born who was unwanted. It was abandoned to devouring wild animals. It was thrown out on the trash heap. You know, it's hard for us in our, in our 21st century thinking to imagine that this was a rather common practice in those days. When they had an unwanted baby, they would often discard it, let it dry out, die in the sun, or be eaten by, uh, by wild animals. It was denied basic care that is given to the baby. Its umbilical cord was not cut. It wasn't washed. It wasn't given the salt rub, which they which was common practice. It wasn't placed in swaddling clothes. It was symbolic of Israel's native condition. But then, notice what the scripture says, and when I pass by you, that is this, this, this unwanted, discarded baby, when I pass by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you, live. Did we hear anything about that, similar to that this morning in the Sermon on the Dry Bones? God passed by her in her unlovely condition and said, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field and you grew and matured and became what? Wow, what a transformation. All right, let's move on. When I passed by you again, later on, and looked upon you, indeed your time had, uh, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing or my garment over you. I swore an oath and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, verses six to eight. Notice what he did then. He gave her a beauty treatment. Notice what he did. This is God working for Israel. He dressed her in embroidered cloth. He, gave, he made slippers for her of dolphin skin. He adorned her with ornaments, which was customary in that part of the world at that time. She ate delicacies. Uh-oh, <laughs> Doc, she, <laughs> fine flour. Doc has been talking to us about refined foods this week, hasn't he, huh? But again, we must remember this was, you know, this was common practice in those days. When Esther went into the, into the king's court, they did the same thing for her. Um, she ate delicacies or pastries of fine flour, honey, and oil. Uh, she became exceedingly beautiful. What a transformation from an ugly, unwanted, abandoned baby struggling in its own blood to a princess who is exceedingly beautiful. Be 
A beautiful people is God's method to reach the world. Now, it may be surprising to you. God has chosen beauty as his means of reaching the unbelieving world. There's a good reason for that. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Her perfect beauty impressed the nations to seek after her God. If you continue to read in Ezekiel 16, you'll see that that was the case. Now, as you continue to read in Ezekiel 16, she came to the place where she, she became proud of her own beauty and she began to prostitute herself to the nations about her. And you know, we know the, we know the unfortunate history that took place in Israel. But God's method to win the nations around her was her beauty. Notice, and this is only a sampling, go to your concordance, you'll find a whole big section on, on beauty and beautiful. Look up at those two words in your concordances. I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman, Jeremiah 6.2, to give them beauty for ashes. In Isaiah 61, God just, you know, his transforming grace is just incredible. I, I, I'm going to give you beauty for ashes. And let the beauty of the, our Lord God be upon us, Psalm number 90. O Zion, put on your beautiful garments. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Beauty. In that day, the branch of the Lord. Who's the branch? Hmm? The Lord Jesus himself, right? In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Isaiah, the fourth chapter. Now, we've just witnessed a royal wedding not long ago on the other side of the pond, right? The magnificence of it, the beauty of it, just the surroundings and the beautiful bridal pair, handsome and beautiful, captured your heart, did it not? It just sucked you right in. That's the way beauty operates. But notice in Revelation 19, we have a, a similar picture of another royal wedding. Notice what it says. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready and to her was given that she should be arrayed in what? Fine linen, clean and white for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. God's last day church will be a beautiful church. You see, beauty has the capacity of passing your um, the gateways to your mind. It passes right through them and catches your heart before you know it. Think of the beautiful things that God has created. Think of these growing fields around, the granaries, the beautiful barns, the beautiful farms around us. 
I find them very attractive. They bring joy, gladness to my heart. Beautiful sunset, sunrise, flowers, cascading uh, rivulets of water down a mountainside, great falls, bridal falls, you know, falling over uh, uh, a cliff and, and dropping thousands of feet into the, into the bottom. These are the things that tend to capture our hearts once we see them. We're all automatically engrossed in them immediately before we ever recognize that it's happened to us. So the gospel is really a, rem a romantic love story that creates melody, joy, and openness to Christ. The music of the gospel, that's the beauty. The music of the gospel must capture the heart before the words can be understood. Did you catch the significance of that? Christ's method alone will bring true success in reaching the people. Then the servant of God lays out four steps that Jesus invariably followed. He played the music. His life was beautiful. It was graceful. And he won their hearts. Beauty has the capacity of doing that. One writer has said it this way, evangelism is a way of living beautifully and opening one's web of relationship to include the non-believer. A person, that is the non-believer, is exposed to both the music and the words of the gospel. All right, I've just mentioned this one. Christ's method alone will give true success. Let's see how he did it. He mingled as one. He mingled with them as one, desiring their good. That was the first thing Jesus did. He mingled. Mingling takes time. Time is a precious commodity in our in our day and age, and so therefore we find it difficult to take the, the necessary time to mingle with our neighbors, with the people we, we rub shoulders with in the workplace, even with our family. Time. But Jesus mingled with them. But it wasn't casual mingling. He did that for a reason. Notice what the next step was. He heard their heart cry and sympathized with them. She says, he sympathized with them. Now, he could not sympathize with them unless he first mingled. And in the mingling and the exchange and interchange with um, others, he was, was enabled to hear their heart cry. You will never hear the heart cry of your neighbors if you do not mingle with them. 
You never can. I've heard this over and over again this week. I've heard Alden refer to it a couple times. He wasn't into his sermon the first five minutes. And I said to my wife, he's already stepping on me. And then as the week went along, and other presenters, the doctor here, Rick, um, and others, they kept, they kept coming into my territory, and I kept saying to my wife, am I going to have anything to say by the time this week is over? <laughs> but he heard their heart cry. And then he didn't just listen to the heart cry. Notice what the next step was. He won their confidence by ministering to the need. So you can't minister to a need unless you know what it is. And you're not going to find out what it is unless you hear the heart cry. And unless you hear the heart cry, unless you mingle with them, you're not going to hear the heart cry. See? It takes time. Then he invited them to follow him. Step four. He played the music. That is beauty before he shared the words. Now, let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer. How often have we seen this process followed in evangelism in our church? We usually start with the words. See, we've got it totally backwards. Jesus played music. You know, there's something about music that also passes the conscious gates in the mind. That's why you can hear a tune and find yourself tapping your foot to it before you even realize it. Because music has the capacity to do that. See? It can grab you before you know it, just like beauty. Beauty and music are very much alike. Why do you suppose that Satan has spent so much time in distorting, making ugly the music that God has intended to bring cheer to our hearts. Hmm? Why do you suppose? Hey, look, it, it reaches our mind. It goes through the, the conscious gates of our mind before we realize it. That's the way beauty is. Jesus played the music. He mingled. He listened. He sympathized. And he found a way of ministering to that need. Then he said, he gained their confidence that way, then he said, follow me. Okay, let's move on. In other words, you must be the good news before you can share it effectively. Paul said, you are our epistles. You remember that? Known and read of all men. You may be the only Bible anybody will ever read. So you must be the good news. 
One's interaction with others is seen as faultless and, and exemplary. That's what you mean by being the good news. <clears throat> the interaction that you have with other people, their evaluation of that is that um, your, your, your interaction with them is faultless and is exemplary. And that produces credibility. <laughs> and credibility is the first step in winning souls to Jesus. Now just think about it. We don't deal with strangers. I've lived in different parts of the country. Ministries carried me to various places in the country. Whenever we arrived in a new place, you know one of the first things I'm doing? Both Gloria and I are doing, well, where's a good beauty shop? Where's a good barber shop? <laughs> and who do I ask? I'll ask members of my church. Who's a good barber in town? Who's a good doctor? See? Who's a good dentist? Who's a good shoe repairman? Who's, you know, any number of things. The first thing we do, we ask people who know because they have credibility. We don't just go to the yellow pages and run our fingers down the page and pick out something, see? We go to people that we know, people that have credibility. And when you have, and when you have developed credibility with the unbeliever, then doors will open to you. Now here's something, I, I don't know whether you've seen this before or not, but it seems apparent to me. The Bible talks about two beautiful evangelists. What time is it getting to be here? Oh my. Two beautiful evangelists. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. She is clothed with a heavenly covering of light. Her feet are outfitted with the moon, similar to the, the dolphin-skinned slippers that God placed upon his bride Israel. Okay? Her head is graced with a crown of 12 stars. She is free of any artificial ornamentation. That is, her methods of evangelism <laughs> come from her maker, come from her husband. Okay? She attracts non-believers because of her beautiful character. You have another evangelist, Again, in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, she's a woman that was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having on her hand, a, a, in her hand, a golden cup full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Her dress is all artificial. These are man-made methods of growing. Her method of attraction focuses on her personal appearance. Again, it's all egocentric, all artificial. 
Her worship has morphed into entertainment. Can I just stop there for a moment and digress a moment? You see, she sees herself as being outpaced by Hollywood. And so she's adopted the ways of Hollywood to attract people. She's gone to entertainment. Pastors have become entertainers, basically. And um, every once in a while, I will, you know, I'll turn on the TV and I'll surf around some of the religious stations and just to see what's going on. Big time entertainment, brother. Um, often worship is characterized with theatricals of some kind, drama, pantomime, high energy music, holy dance, etc. It's a self-centered worship, glorifies the creature rather than the creator. But let me talk about high energy mu music for just a moment. Um, and the entertainment scene. Do you know how a church, do you know how to tell if a church is heading in the entertainment direction? One of the first signs? Applause. It's one of the first signs. Applause comes from the sports arena and the theater. They're appropriate there, but not in the worship of God. You can always tell. Now, let me point, yes. I, I, was, I was just saying that applause comes from the theater and from the sports arena and, and it's appropriate there, but not in the worship of God. Now, as it deals with music, music can be offered as an offering to God or as a performance. I happen to believe that music should always be presented as an offering, sacred. Something that should lift the thoughts and the mind to God, fill one with joy and praise and wonder at his majesty, his grace, his goodness. You see, a performance does not direct the people in the audience toward God, but toward the performer. That's why it draws applause. People recognize it for what it is. Now at times, a congregation can be so spiritually insensitive that they can applaud at an offering. 
what have they done? They've not only robbed the person who has offered it to God of the offering, but they have offended the God of heaven for calling an offering a performance. All of these things are used as attractions by the modern church growth movement to bring people into the church. Um, the, the inspired writer tells us, Ellen White, that it's very simple. Kindly words, simply spoken, little attention simply bestowed, a true heart. Um, expression of Christ-like sympathy given in simplicity has power to open the door of hearts that need the simple, delicate touch of the Spirit of Christ. Notice these statements. We'll run through them very quickly. From Jesus himself, let your light so shine before men that your good works may that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The good works of the children of God are the most effectual preaching that the unbeliever has. 1T 193. What's that? Yeah, you're right. The good works of God's people have a more powerful influence than words. The kind, courteous Christian is the most powerful argument in favor of the gospel that can be produced, 2SM 238. Now, this is an interesting statement. Um, I, pulled out of a com I pulled out of a commentary. This is what it says, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug in complacent conse consecration, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies how many deaths? A thousand deaths. Okay, our last section this, this, in this session. When Jesus was praying in the garden, no, I'm sorry, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. And the word became flesh, John 1:14, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Grace? In the Greek, the word grace, charis, carries along with it the idea of beauty and charm. The, John says that, that when Jesus came in human flesh, he was full of grace and truth. We saw his glory. It was full of grace, joy, 
love, mercy, goodness. It conveys the idea of beauty and charm. In Christ, men are confronted with the winsomeness and loveliness of God, not just his power and majesty. It is when men can be brought to understand that God loves them. They see him for what he is, see his character, that it has an attraction, it has a beauty, a charm about it that they cannot resist. And it is his people through which he wishes to reveal that, okay? Truth. See, beauty and truth go together. They balance each other. You remember, there are two different forms of beauty. We saw that in the book of Revelation, okay? So beauty alone must be counterbalanced with something else, and that's always truth. It's just like worship. In the, um, in the, in the fourth chapter of John, where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, she is asking him where they're going to worship, and he said to her, the day is coming when you will neither worship here in Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem, but you will, you will worship the God of heaven in spirit. See, worship must have spirit attached to it. It must be full of joy. It must be, it must be full of the love of God. But spirit by itself can lead to... to um, um, extremes. See? It has to always be counterbalanced with truth. Jesus said he, you will worship him in spirit and in truth. So here we have in Jesus, encapsulated in his humanity, Jesus was the embodiment of truth. He lived it. He didn't only talk about it, and proclaim the truth, but he was the truth incarnate. People saw the truth in him. And he's our model. His life was a beautiful witness. He played the music. His beauty attracted men by the thousands. Captured by his beauty and grace. John 17, 18, Jesus in his prayer in Gethsemane said, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. In other words, we are being given an incarnational model. Jesus said, as you have sent me, sent him in the flesh, so I am sending them into the world. It's incarnational. It's living evangelism. This is not evangelism that is simply spoken from the sacred desk. This is evangelism that is lived out in the life of these people, in the workplace, in their families, in their neighborhoods, wherever they are. People can see Jesus in them. God sent a man when he sought to win the world. He still 
sins. Amen. You must be the good news. If you are going to share effectively the good news. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this instruction from your holy word. We thank you that Jesus came, clothed himself in humanity, became a man among men, reflecting the glory, the winsomeness, the grace of God. so that we might be attracted to him. And now he wants to send us in the same manner that we might reflect his grace, his mercy, his goodness, his love. Help us to be the good news. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.